from the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. It's been more than eight years since Boris Nemtsov, physicist by education, who became one of the leading politicians opposed to Vladimir Putin, was assassinated on a bridge close by the Kremlin. Since then, his daughter, 39-year-old Jana Nemtsova, has carried on his mission as co-founder of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom. It promotes Nemtsov's political legacy and implements programs in education and freedom of speech. I saw Jana Nemtsova recently in Tallinn, Estonia, at the Lenart Mary Security Conference, and she agreed to join me on my podcast when she was back here in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm happy to actually have somebody here in a studio physically, because so many times we do this podcast remotely and, you know, technically it's fine, but it's really nice to have a person to talk to. And it's particularly nice to have you here, Jana. Um, I've been a big, big fan of yours. You've really carried on in a, in a fantastic way after your father's death and just really, I'm sure, making him very proud with what you're doing. So maybe for um, our listeners, you could start with that. Why don't we say, where are you based? Where are you living? Um, and what precisely are you doing? I know it's the Nimsoff Foundation, but tell us a little bit about more what you do. My name is Jean Nemtsovar. As you've already mentioned, uh, my father was Boris Nemtsov, a Russian slain opposition politician who was killed in Moscow in 2015. Since his assassination, my life has dramatically changed and I decided to carry on his political legacy. So um, actually in Moscow, I worked as a journalist. I worked for RBC television which is like the Russian language uh, business news network, kind of Bloomberg. And I commented on corporate news and uh, stock markets, wow. shares and bonds. So, but uh, after my father's assassination, I moved to Germany and I joined Deutsche Welle, the German public broadcaster. So uh, I worked there for five years and I did interviews with politicians or opinion leaders who had a strong stance on Russia. And I even traveled to the U.S. I interviewed uh, late Senator McCain, for example, and Senator Rubio. Oh, <laughs> Uh, among other other personalities. But in 2020, I decided to quit my job and to focus on the development of the Borsamsa Foundation, which I registered uh, in Germany as well in 2015. So we, we are doing uh, a lot of different things, but our key objectives are to advance education and media freedom. And all our projects are focused on these two areas because we believe that without education, broadly speaking, I would say education, re-education, and more broadly, enlightenment, and uh, without our freedom of speech, we will never, never be able to rebuild Russia. So that's what we are not a political foundation because uh, the German law... Uh, is very restrictive. 
when it comes to the nonprofit sector. So we cannot uh, lobby any political decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot support any candidates and participate in political campaigns. Other than that, we can do a lot of things. So this is uh, briefly who I am. Oh, and, and last but not the least, I'm in podcasting. So last <laughs> year I, I, I created a podcast, another Russia, together with Ben Rhodes. Ben Rhodes uh, was an advisor to President Barack Obama, and he now works uh, as a journalist um, and a writer. And we created this podcast for Cricket Media. So if you feel like listening to it, please do that. Definitely. (laughs) We'll promote that at the end as well. And uh, speaking of promotion, there actually is a project that you will be working on with the Wilson Center of the Kennan Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I guess master's degree program, Charles University in Prague? I would be happy to work together on that with Canon Institute, but currently I'm just uh, trying to spread the word that I will we will launch this program in Prague this fall. So uh, the idea is that so just some political explanation for this program we needed here at Canon Institute. So since the invasion, Putin has literally destroyed uh, Russian education and humanities. Mm-hmm. So he uses education as a tool to indoctrinate a new generation of people. So this culture of critical thinking, of challenging different schools of thought has been ruined by Putin because it's not in his interests to have any critical thinking. So, but there are a lot of people, first of all, lots of scholars lost their jobs and uh, went abroad. I mean, Russian-speaking scholars. And second, there are a lot of people, lots of students who are still willing to get high high education in humanities. And they can't afford to go to the U.S. because it's very, very expensive. Um, They do not speak foreign languages to be admitted to any foreign language program. So that's why we are trying to respond to this current challenge. Because, like... If you don't have human capital, you will not be able to do anything in the future. And we decided uh, to create the program, the master's program, Russian Studies Boris Nemtsov Educational Program, named after my father. So to fill in this gap, and we uh, we are doing it uh, in cooperation with Charles University. So the program will be accredited at the Faculty of Arts at Charles University with the support of the Faculty of Social Sciences. So... I think that we will shortly open this program and you will be able to apply. We are not only interested in students coming from Russia or Russians. We are interested in American students willing to learn more about Russia and to improve Russian language skills because currently... I mean, so I know that there are some students in the United States of America who are st- still studying Russia and they keep calm when they study Russia. So, <laughs> and I, I have a number of them. I teach at Georgetown and there are students who really want to continue, get into the field, continue. And it's difficult because you basically can't you cannot go to travel Russia. to Russia, yep. Belarus, and of course, because uh, Ukraine is a war torn country, mm-hmm. you cannot go to Ukraine. So you have two options Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Oh. And literally, American students go there. So I would like to uh, propose the third option, which would be uh, Prague, because Prague has a very vital Russian-speaking community. So they will be definitely exposed to a lot of Russian language and will have very good uh, 
Russian-speaking scholars there. We'll have actually an international faculty, including um, Russian-speaking scholars, Czech professors, and even uh, Tim Fry from Columbia University will teach a compulsory course. Mm -hmm. He is one of the best uh, specialists uh, on Russia. So I actually met with him here in D.C. Well, so... Yes, please, <laughs> please <laughs> apply. Please follow us on social media, Boris Center Foundation on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We will check it out. You know, Jana, I wanted to ask you, you were talking about education and how Putin really has destroyed that system. And I would have to agree with you. And I've been reading about these courses. Most of them are kind of new, but a few have been around for a little while, which are courses in Russia's history, and they're required courses for uh, young Russians and all the way up into college, university. And they give, um, I think what I would say is a very edited propagandistic version of what Russia is about. Now, can you tell us, I mean, you obviously know a lot about this, just in brief, what's happening to education right now in Russia under Putin? In brief, it's well, difficult. Brief. <laughs> so, uh, in brief, it's just one sentence. He he uses not only uh, high education, but generally speaking, education. It also applies to schools, to school ch- children, as a tool to promote, to advance his uh, propaganda and his agenda. Uh, and in these very tragic circumstances, to justify. Uh, his brutal, unprovoked aggression, very bloody in Ukraine. So this is what mm-hmm. he's doing to higher education and uh, and in schools. So in schools uh, across a country, uh, they I think a couple of months ago, probably last year even I don't remember when exactly they introduced like a new clause it's called uh, conversations about important things <laughs> exactly yes, yes this is the exact it, translation yeah. right mm-hmm. so this is like part of this patriotic uh, upbringing and also it applies so the objective for uh, universities uh, is to educate a new patriotic generation so that means that they just indoctrinate uh, people. Uh, there is only one point of view. I assume, I haven't yet um, read the history books, but I assume that they <laughs> heavily edited all the texts uh, and they removed some parts from that and they like trying to rethink this history uh, in their own interests. Yes, the Russia history is all has always been uh, an important and powerful propaganda tool. Not only in Russia, right. so they are not inventing something new. Russia is not where things have ever been invented. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, but they are very skillfully using it uh, to to and. Why they're doing it, uh, it's very obvious, because if you look at our society, you will see that we 
even uh, in relation to the war in Ukraine and how people perceive this war. So there is, though all, I just have to make this disclaimer that it's very difficult right now to conduct any surveys or polls in Russia. I totally understand, but still, if you even rely on previous surveys and you look at uh, different people, you, you, you clearly see this generational gap in people's perceptions, because younger people tend to be more critical, more open, more pro-democracy. Uh, their partners of media consumption are different. And an older generation of Russians is more conservative, is more about uh, patriotism, militarism, and traditions. So they try to reverse this trend. And unfortunately, they might be very successful. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, because, you know, I actually do teach a course that focuses on young people in Russia. And let's say three years ago, there were there were polls and there were a few books. Um, in fact, one that I was using as a textbook by Russian experts who were primarily sociologists who were studying young people. But it feels like things are really changing, that um, the war, unfortunately, is affecting even young people. And of course, if young people are the, the ones who are dying in this war. But if I know this is really difficult for you to generalize, but could you describe, I mean, you know, you're a young person. What do you think is, is there a prevailing feeling among young Russians about their place, about Russia's place in the world? After this war, you know, after the invasion, because look, Ru Russia, the, even the word is toxic. A lot of Russians can't get visas. Uh, there are sanctions. They can't study abroad very easily. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult, I think, for young people. So, where would you say their thinking is about? about all this? Oh, it's very difficult because uh, young people uh, are different. It's quite a diverse group. And if you're talking about uh, young Russians fighting in Ukraine, you should understand one thing. It's it's not something new, but in Russia's case, it's a war of the poor in the interests of the rich. Mm. Putin and his clique, that's it. So here, the idea for him is to remain in power for life. So mainly uh, when we're talking about partial mobilization, uh, mainly people who are poor, who have no resources, uh, not only conscription, but those people who sign their contracts, these are very poor people. Mm -hmm. It's not about a lot about Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, this is one thing. Right. And these people, uh, they are probably young. They're way younger than me. They, of course, uh, I think that they... Uh, believe in uh, all those propagandistic narratives. Uh, they're not that well-educated at all, and they don't think <laughs> probably <laughs> that much. So this one thing. Uh, another uh, is that there are young people in big cities who are more critical. But I want to highlight one important thing. Russia is under sanctions. Uh, people cannot get visas to go to study abroad not because of Western governments, but because of Putin mm. and his war. This is, uh, and I think everybody should understand this. Mm -hmm. It's not, 
<laughs> either way around. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, now it's also with the United States when uh, Putin are ordered to like fire all uh, Russian citizens who worked at the embassy. I mean, he complicates even the work of Western embassies in Russia. They are severely understaffed. That's true. So this is how it works. It's not about... So there are some uh, very severe restriction, visa restrictions imposed on Russians by some European countries, but not all of them. But, but what Putin is doing, he is trying to make sure Russians are completely isolated. They will not travel abroad. They will not be uh, will not have access to quality education or anything like that. That's that's the goal. So if you live in isolation for a long period of time, you will be affected by propaganda. That is just hundred percent true. So now the only thing, the only source of information for Russians is of course the internet. And since the YouTube hasn't yet been blocked, so th this is the main source of information. So once again, uh, younger people are very diverse and it depends a lot on their status, on whether uh, they have resources, they don't have resources, whether they were born in big cities or in small villages and small cities where there are no jobs. Mm -hmm. so. You know, um, a lot of my friends who were journalists who fled after the invasion, and you left much earlier, so you've been out of Russia for a while, but their quandary, I guess, was that they were not quite sure when they would be able to go back. I mean, I remember back in February, March, you know, maybe April, people were saying, well, maybe the war will last for three months or something, and then we can go home. But of course, that hasn't happened. And the war can stretch on for a very long time. So I guess my question is, what do Russians and, and I guess we can't generalize. What about you individually as you are outside of Russia, yet your focus is on educating Westerners about Russia, continuing, you know, a high level of education with values that you would like to see in Russia? What is your hope for, I don't know, influencing Russia at all? Or is it just something that you have to say, Putin's in charge, and until he is gone, nothing will change? This is true. <laughs> uh, so, no, nothing, uh, everything will change to the worse. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If what? If, if Putin remains in power. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it's just my nature. <laughs> nothing will change, no. It's so optimistic. <laughs> mm -hmm. It will change to the worse. <laughs> so, uh, I didn't, I, I didn't um, um, elaborate on one of the points in your previous question about uh, what's the prevailing mood right now. So, I think the prevailing mood is apathy, no hope. So, there is no future. Russia, Russians, uh, pro-Putin, anti-Putin Russians. It doesn't matter. They have no vision of future. They don't know what uh, they will do in one month. They don't know what they will do in two months, let alone in one year. Mm. So under these conditions, these are very difficult conditions. Um, so this is just uh, <laughs> something that that is happening because uh, in countries like the U.S., you are always talking about the future. It's what uh, mainly inspires people. 
future, mm. which will be brighter than 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 the present. In Russia, so the idea is that the future might be worse than the present, <laughs> and the whole hope is around to remain in this. Uh, in, in this environment, it's a low point, but people don't want to <laughs> things to get worse. Ooh, and this yes. is, by the way, uh, Putin is very subtle and he skillfully uses and manages people's expectations because over the last years, the situation in Russia, both economic and social, has worsened a lot. Mm-hmm. But he's still... Let's say yes. He's an autocrat, but he's quite. He's still popular, not really popular, but yes, he has some support because he he, he says, if I'm out, uh, it will be worse, mm-hmm. uh, and it will be more. It 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 will all happen abruptly. And what he offers is that it will not happen abruptly, but it will happen gradually. <laughs> but we, we can have different opinions about that. But he is managing people's expectations, being one of the worst rulers in terms of his policies, ruining his economy, his social sphere, everything. He is managing people's expectations by saying it might be worse without me. Mm. You're right. Yeah, that's and, it. And Janya, I would argue that he has depoliticized people. You know, that's 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 one of the factors that has led to the war. But that's he was doing that uh, for many many years. Yes. Right. Just uh, he made sure uh, ahead of his war, he made sure people were absolutely disengaged from politics and regarded it as something uh, non-essential. Mm-hmm. As something for our, for some marginalized uh, activists like myself. So when coming to me, I because he, I don't want to generalize, uh, but it's obvious that Putin is managing expectations. It might be worse without me. So I'm not a good example. First of all, I left Russia uh, eight years ago, but. I I traveled to Russia many times, so my last day in Russia was on day one of the war, mm. and I left on that day. Um, but I am an exception uh, in many respects because I have vital- vitality. <laughs> vitality? Vitality, yes, because I can cope with a lot of pressure and a lot of stress. Uh, I think so. <laughs> like your father. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I understand that uh, many people, many people who have been in resistance, in Russian resistance for many years, they don't have vitality and... Yes, they are absolutely disorientated, distracted. And it's the same applies to people who are abroad, basically. That also their future is 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 not uh, quite uh, predictable. Mm-hmm. So they don't know what they will do next. Yeah, and I think you know, with young people. And was, was, I just want to say mm-hmm. one more thing. You're right. So because lots of people who left uh, Russia uh, during the first couple of months, they were thinking that this war wouldn't last for many years, and now many people understand that this war 
that Putin can sustain this war for a prolonged period of time. And this, of course, creates a lot of resentment and different uh, uh, negative emotions. And, of course, it affects not only Russia, because uh, in Ukraine, a lot of suffering in Ukraine. So most of, of the suffering is in Ukraine. And, of course, it's very difficult to face the reality and to understand that Putin can go on with this war for a long period of time. And that's what uh, President Zelensky understands really well. And I think that he has voiced it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. What do you say to people like, um, I know a Ukrainian woman who really argues very strongly that Russians should be pariahs, that they should not be allowed anywhere, even if they're, let's say, against the war or not supporting it. They're still, you know, in Russia. This would be primarily people in Russia. And uh, they're not on the streets protesting. Therefore, we shouldn't allow them in Europe. Forget about giving them visas. What do you say to, to people who are very strongly, you know, feeling that? It's a difficult question for me because I'm a citizen of Russia. Mm-hmm. I didn't choose to be a citizen of Russia, but uh, I always say I, during any of my public appearances that I'm... I, I mean, I have nothing to do with Putin. I have now voted for Putin. I think that Putin were, uh, that my father was killed on Putin's order. But mm. uh, it doesn't suggest at all that I don't feel this responsibility and pain. Mm. Uh, and I'm trying to do everything I can to help. And the Nemtsa Foundation is funding a, quite a big program for ourselves to support 15 Ukrainian students. Uh, in in uh, most of them are based in uh, uh, Prague, and one student whom I met uh, in in New York, she she is in at Columbia University. So uh, it's our job to do what we can to help. So the best uh, thing I think to think about anti-war Russians is to think that they are your tactical allies. <laughs> You don't have to be friends with them. You don't have to love them. And I totally understand. And also in a situation, uh, in such a situation when Russia is waging a war against Ukraine, a very bloody, unjustified uh, medieval war, uh, I understand Ukrainians that in order to fight effectively, they should hate. It does not mean that they should hate forever, but reconciliation will take a lot of time. But in order to fight right now, they are on the front line. They are fighting with Putin. Mm. Uh, They should hate. Otherwise, you cannot fight. Mm. And that's what I... I was at Columbia University on the invitation of our fellow. She spoke about her initiative, uh, A Brave Generation, Oh, she is originally from Horlovka. She she survived two wars. She so she left Horlovka in twenty uh, uh, fifteen, I think so. Yes, on even twenty fourteen, and then uh, she was in Kiev when the war started, and I urged her to leave Kiev. So and she created this Brave Generation initiative to help Ukrainian students to get accepted to American and European universities. So, and then afterwards, there was uh, a public talk of Svetoslav Vakarchuk, who is a very renowned Ukrainian singer. 
and he was asked a question about about Russian, the Russian language and Russians in general, and he was very right by saying that you can, it's very, uh, it can destroy you to live with haters forever, but because as long as we are uh, fighting right now and we have to kill our enemies, we <laughs> cannot afford to love them. Mm. We, otherwise, we won't be able to fight. It's a difficult situation. Uh, it's a, so uh, Russians are now they. It's a very difficult situation. It's it's a big shame. It's a lot of pain, and it's really difficult to say to Ukrainians what they should do. Uh, they know what they're doing. They are fighting for their country. So we should help and we should understand their position. I think so. Not, I, I am not. I am not in a position to say whether they're right or wrong. Uh, this is their position. You know, understandable, uh, but but, but about protesting, I want to say one thing. Uh, protesting right now is impossible in Russia, uh, but there are individual protests. A lot of people, hundreds of people, uh, are in jail. On also ordinary people, not only well-known people. Uh, this is one thing. Another thing which is right, when it was possible to protest, very few people showed up. And one good example of it uh, is that when my father was assassinated, in a city with over 16 million people, 50,000 people took part in the protest sanctioned by the authorities. Because... And what? Why <laughs> others? Uh, others didn't show up. Mm. And yeah. in this way, Ukrainians are right. Mm -hmm. You have to do something. You have to be engaged. You have to think. And it's not this. I the whole concept. It's not happening in my backyard. Has proven to be absolutely. <laughs> um, how do you say that? Mm, destructive. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question that right now is kind of a big subject um, on many levels about Russia. And it's a debate over whether Russia actually can be a normal country. That a lot of people, they'll say in the academic field, say, you know, by nature, Russia really is an imperialist country. It always has been an imperial power. Mm -hmm. um, its culture, its language and everything leads it to be that way. And it, it can't do anything but. Do, do you agree with that? I mean, is that the no, Russia? No, with this I don't agree at all because uh, it was enrooted in American tradition to have uh, slaves and then you abandoned slavery, sure. 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 <laughs> uh, thanks to Lincoln. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, it's a good example. I don't believe that this is something very prominent in academia. And also Germany is a mm -hmm. good example. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but could Russia do what Germany did? That's Everyone can do everything, but uh, it, 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 it depends on many, many factors. Uh, yes, Germany is a different case because Germany was occupied by allied forces, allies. So, and they enforced a lot of things. This is counter argument to my argument. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know, uh, I, I think that progress is inevitable in the long run. 
uh, and they can be uh, uh, push setbacks on this way. What we are seeing right now is in across the world, and Russia is one of the most egregious examples of that, but this rise of populism in politics, uh, authoritarian rule across the world. Um, so it's like a setback from what was happening uh, in the second half of the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, and was a wave of liberalization. So with setbacks, so progress is inevitable. Russia, uh, I'm not a historian, so uh, don't judge me too hard. <laughs> but Russia is obviously lagging behind the world, the developed world, because we had 70 years of communism. So we are one century behind, <laughs> something like that. Mm, yes, I think it can change uh, and it will change. Uh, but I'm not sure so it will come tomorrow or something like that. I do not believe in this theory of predetermination, that mm-hmm. everything is determined and you cannot change the course of uh, history. And I don't believe in this natural things because Russians uh, can, I, as I see, <laughs> Russians are... Uh, easily integrate into many Western countries. Mm-hmm. So I just think, yes, that's possible, but uh, it requires uh, a lot of effort because in Germany, uh, the important part of it was their work with their society because uh, German society at first, it's very difficult to accept your defeat uh, and to say I was wrong and to admit your guilt and responsibility mm-hmm. on a personal level, on a, um, on different, uh, on, on, on societal level, etc. So, and yes, it's about, it will be all about re-education mm-hmm. because you cannot have a sustainable democracy if you have one democratic leader. It will not last long. So that should be, and that's why I'm, very serious about enlightenment and about education and in the course in this specific situation for education. And also just one more thought uh, on a more philosophical note uh, is not only communism uh, was a problem, but also in Europe there was a period in history uh, called enlightenment Yes, that uh, eventually led to the creation of what we now know as European values and institutions mm-hmm. uh, that make sure that these value, values are being acted upon. Uh, and in Russia, this enlightenment <laughs> ended with this correspondence between Catherine the Great and and Voltaire. <laughs> Voltaire, right? Voltaire. Voltaire. Who, and she said that it's too early to abandon serfdom. It's not in the nature of our country to, to, to not to have uh, serfs. Hmm. So this is uh, pretty much... So I think that this is a very weak argument about predetermination of something. I do not believe in it at hmm. all. Because it's, if you believe in it, you mean you can just keep calm and do nothing. <laughs> Everything yes. is predetermined. Right. Is there yeah. something... 
Maybe we'll, we'll end on this. Is there something that you remember from your father, what he said from his political life and his devotion to causes in Russia that you remember specifically anything that he told you that you always keep in your mind? Some specific thoughts. I think they are all available online. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but personally. Personally, um, so he wanted me to be, so it, he was he was really, really very much obsessed with the idea for me to be a financially independent person. Hmm. <laughs> so he wanted me to build my own career, not to depend on anyone. Hmm. And I think uh, it was foundational uh, for my future life that I was taught, it's, it's a very, I think, American uh, style, I was taught that I should build my own life and create and count on myself, not on the others, on my parents, on my boyfriends, on my husband. So that he he wanted to ensure that that I'm an absolutely independent person, which I am mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> so that's and he was very he was very um uh, in favor of me mastering foreign languages, especially English. Yeah. So, and that helps me. I, I understand this is something very basic, but you have to understand that thousands and millions of Russians can speak any English. Well, that's true. Well, it was really wonderful talking with you, Jana. And I think the, the fact that you're going to work in education and that you are working in education is so critical because that's the thing you're right. That's the thing that changes, changes people and it can change countries and the future. Because right now, I mean, when I look at Russia, I, I don't know if I'll ever go back. I don't know what kind of a country it will be in two years, five years, what's going to happen, but it's not looking good. Yes, I have to agree, yes, and I have more or less the same feelings, but I have this vitality and I'm (laughs) trying to to try at least. Well, you're doing it, and thank you very much. Really great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Jill. Canon X is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.